All right, so uh, we'll be looking into the Gospel of John today, uh, the first chapter. Uh, I'd like you all to turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And this is what the Word says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this wonderful morning. We thank you, O Lord, for your precious words in, in the scripture that we read. We ask you, Lord, as we, as we get into your word, that you would remove all distraction that you would remove all lethargy, exhaustion, that you would give us a passionate desire to hear from you. And we pray, O Lord, that you would protect us this afternoon as we get into your word. We pray that your, your word would be heard and your words alone for your glory in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name, we pray. Okay, now the author of John... Is no other than John himself, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. You know, Jesus had uh, given him and his brother, James, uh, the name Sons of Boanerges, which means Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Now, we aren't entirely sure why that nickname, but we do see a few instances where James and John displayed fervency and and anger. You know, there's a situation where Jesus and his disciples, they're going through Samaria, and their end goal was to get to Jerusalem. And when the people found that out, they opposed them. Um, and James and John look at Jesus and say, hey, um, if you want, we could just call fire down from heaven uh, and, and solve the situation. <laughs> and, um, and in their fervency, and Jesus rebukes them. Um, this is a good example as to why they were called the sons of thunder. Passionate, fervent. Uh, you know, you don't stand their wrath. And if you, if you look into Scripture, into the epistles of John, and even in the Gospel of John, you start to notice something. That this fervency is tempered with love. He has made references to the word love in Scripture Almost 80 times. 80 times. 
He's also the one scripture depicts as the disciple that leans on Jesus at the table. You know, it would seem that after walking with Jesus for a lifetime, the son of thunder had earned a new nickname, the apostle of love. In fact, he also does not refer to himself by name in this book, in this gospel, but chooses the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And as you read the epistles, his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you start to realize that he is in awe and, and wonder that Jesus would love him. And that stems from who Jesus is. And as he pens this gospel, his intentions are clear. That at the end of reading and wrestling with the facts portrayed in this book, that all men who come and see might believe in Jesus. In the Gospel of John, the word believe has been used almost a hundred times. A hundred times it's been used. His aim is that men, women, children who, who come and see the truth of God's love through Jesus Christ and that they would believe in him. He is here to proclaim the magnificent truth that is Jesus. And as I, as I read the Gospel of John, I found at least three instances where you see this, this phrase, come and see, come and see. We see the first insta instance where John the Baptist is there. There are two of his disciples, and Jesus passes by, and John says, behold the Lamb of God. And the moment he says this, the two disciples start following Jesus, and Jesus turns and says, what seekest thou? What are you seeking? They said, we want to know where you live. And he said, come and see. And the rest is history. They never turned back. The second instance is when Philip goes to Nathaniel after he spent, he spent time with the Lord and says, come and, come and see this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And um, Philip's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He said, come and see. Come and see. Then there's the uh, third aspect uh, where the women of Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan woman, where after Jesus has an encounter with her, she runs into town and says to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so as I read the gospel, John's put these passages to, to call out to us, come and see who Jesus is. Come and see the truth for yourself. See, John wrote this book with a very different perspective. You know, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they begin, yes, by placing Jesus within a historical setting, but it's the Gospel of John that is unique. It opens very differently. You know, Matthew starts with the lineage. You know, his genealogy of Jesus, you know, goes connects it all the way to David and Abraham. And, and Mark, on the other hand, starts with the preaching of John the Baptist. And, and Luke starts with the dedication uh, of his work uh, to Theophilus and follows with a prediction of the birth of John the Baptist. But John is different. You see, he doesn't want to start with the preaching of John the Baptist or even the prediction of John the Baptist or even going into the near past of <laughs> the genealogy of D Jesus all the way to David and Abraham. No, no, no. 
He goes beyond that. He goes to the beginning and beyond that. I want to show you, is what John's saying, that the starting of the point of the gospel, the good news, can be traced back before the beginning of the entire universe. I want you to really consider and understand Jesus' teaching and his works. But you will not comprehend the good news of Jesus in its fullest sense unless you view him from this point. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and his words and deeds are those of the God-man. It is in this gospel, brothers and sisters, that the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is fully displayed. The creator has become a part of his creation, fully God and fully man, in order that he might save sinners from sin, death, judgment, and eternal hell. You must believe in him. The person of Jesus Christ and the work that was completed. Not, not the fact that, hey, there was a historical person named Jesus or that Jesus was just a wise man or Jesus was a revolutionary, but that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of these first verses. Otherwise, the deeds and words of Jesus, if they're not the words of God, this, this book is blasphemous. So we start with the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Word is Jesus Christ over here. We, we read through the chapters, and we get that. And, and we wonder, why the Word Word. Why word? Right? Uh, and, and, and here's what we have to take a step back and understand. Who is, the, you know, John writing to? The Jews, the Gentiles, all the people. And in the Greek philosophy, there was an understanding of the word, and it was logos. And they believed in a logos spirit. Some non-personal power source, some energy entity, a non-personal force floating around in the universe, some non-personal entity of wisdom, some way through which everything had to have a beginning. Because when they sat and philosophed, they strangled with and, and, and fought with these truths. They said, there's got to be some power out there. And Logos' word, in, in essence, is meaning, thought, intention. So they had to come with something that says, what creates this order? But it's a non-personal force. John comes along and says, hey, let me introduce you to the fact that the Logos is not an impersonal force. The Logos is a person. The Logos is a person, not um, an impersonal reality, but a personal God who came into the world in the man Jesus. Not just a concept, but a person. And then even beyond that, if you look at the Jewish people, they didn't need an explanation because the phrase, the word of the Lord, appeared so many times. If you read the Old Testament, it, it, it's, it's the word of the Lord. It's a revelation of God. You wouldn't know anything about God 
if he didn't speak. And that's why Hebrews 1 begins with God, who in time past by the fathers and through the prophets spoke in many ways, in many portions, has in these last days spoken to us by his word, by his son. As the Old Testament is the written word and the revelation of God, the New Testament is the account of the incarnate word in the person, Jesus Christ. So he is the word in that in him God speaks and that concept was well established among the Jews. The word of the Lord came to so and so person. If you look at the Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament, you see it. So the word of the Lord is the expression of God to people. There is no greater illustration than that or greater representation or manifestation than the demonstration of the word being Jesus Christ. He is God speaking to us. So the word is Jesus, and John says he was there in the beginning. Now, if you do not qualify the beginning, you basically mean the very beginning. You know, the beginning we see in Genesis 1, verses 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word, the word was already existing. The word was a witness to the beginning. He was there. If you are in no way part of the creation, you are not part of space and time. You are basically eternal. This is a huge statement that John is proclaiming to us. He's like, come and see his pre-existence. He existed before everything ever existed. He is not one that began with the beginning. And we also see this mentioned in John's gospel by Jesus when he takes on the title, I am. I am. It was the title God used to describe his own eternality to Moses when asked for a name. And then you see the seven I am's that Jesus has and he mentions in, in, in John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And then it goes on, the word was with God. That's repeated in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And it's interesting that that's said twice. This is an emphasis to make sure we don't miss the point. When the beginning began, he already existed as God. He's outside of time. He exists as the eternal God. But listen to this. He not only exists as the eternal God, and it says in verse 1, the word was God, but he existed eternally with God. This is important because what it tells us is that not only is he eternal God, but he is distinct from the eternal God. And this is where we come to understand that there is one God, and yet there are three persons, and here we find two of them. He is God. The word was God, but the word was also with God. How can you be God and and how can you be God and with God? Only in a Trinitarian way can that be explained. To be God by nature and yet to be a distinct person being with God. See, John starts with the fact that when you're talking about Jesus, you are talking about a pre-existent, eternal God, not a part of creation. 
And we already established that just by making a comment on the last phrase of verse 1, the word was God. If he pre-existed, uh, he pre-existed time and space, he pre-existed creation, he existed already before anything was created, that was created, that he has to be uncreated. It all falls logically. So he's pre-existent outside of time and space before anything that is made is made. And he is coexistent. Pre-existent, coexistent. And these are essential for salvation, for faith. We've got to understand the person of Jesus. Thirdly, he is self-existent. And it's obvious. You know, you've existed out of creation. You're not dependent on anything for your existence. So he's pre-existent before creation. He's coexistent, and he's self-existent. He made it all. It all came to him. What does the next verse say? All things, in verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He didn't come from anyone or anything. Everything came from him. What does 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6 say? 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. There is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He, we, we exist through him. And Paul echoes this in Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now John moves on to verse 4 which is an obvious conclusion. In him was life. In him was life. He didn't get it from somebody else. In him was life. God, being eternal and being eternally alive, there was never a moment when he did not exist. He was alive and the source of life. And the word used here is not bios in the Greek which is biological life, which is one form of life, the physical aspect, but the word here is zoe, which is to do with the spiritual life, the, the, the principle, the reality of life. So there's the, the, the biological aspect when a baby is born, we all have a, a physical aspect to it, but then there's the zoe, the spiritual aspect to it, the, the, the reality of life. That can't be quantified. You can't put a cell under a microscope and, and kind of identify it. It has to do with personhood. It's an essential life that is not observable. And that's the life that comes from God. And from this comes all of the created order. From the most simplest amoeba to the supernatural spiritual realm, the angels. All of this comes from God. Now, another implication I want to touch on is that when John talks about in him was life, 
we have to understand physical matter did not give rise to life. And I'm going to go into detail here. The reason I say this, there's a great division between the atheistic worldview and the biblical worldview. For the er atheist, everything begins with inanimate matter and energy. That's where everything began. Um, billions of billions of years passed by, and somehow life came into being. But here in John, you see it's this immediate stop saying, no, life preexisted anything that was created. Matter. Matter was created by God. Life existed prior to matter. You've got to understand that. And for, for an atheist to say billions of years, no creator, no intelligence, no design, no purpose, no plan, and then out of that comes these complex, interdependent biological structures, and also the fact that you have personhood, it's not true. So John paints this picture where he says, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you're looking at the one who is himself life. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. You cannot look at Christ in any other way. It's a massive statement. He is life. He is the fundamental reality of all that exists. It is in him we live and move and have our being and have our existence. All that exists, exists because they have life from him. In him was life. You see, life is man's most important asset. To lose life is tragic. And John affo affirmed that in the ultimate sense, life is in Christ. Man's spiritual and physical life come from him. Jesus, the source of life, is also the light of men. And then John makes a wonderful statement in verse 9. The life was the light of men. And you see, and while you might distinguish between life and light, you can't really do it here because what John is saying is that the life is the same as the light of men. That's why he was incarnate, right? That's why he came into the world, to shine light into the darkness, to reveal God. The life was the light. That's an equal statement. That's a parallel statement, just as the word was God. And Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. John 8, verses 12, I am the light of the world. It's, it, it's there over and over again. You see, we struggle. We, we, we've forgotten. We really have forgotten what it is to walk in darkness. And some of us have been born in a Christian household where your, the faith of your parents have shielded you from some of these influences that could have really shown you what life is like without Christ. You see, I, and, I, and I, it, it hit me with, with two incidences recently. One was the election of Trump. Um, and the reason I say this was 
The fact that the Canadian immigration site would crash because people are so traumatized with that thought. They're so in fear and wonder that they're saying, how do I get out of this country right now? The fact that parents weep, wondering what am I going to tell my kids in the morning? The fact that I'm going to say, oh, guess what? The next four years is going to be President Trump. The fact that you have safe, safe zones in universities so that university kids can weep and cry and hug and console one another shows you what it looks like to have no hope. There is no hope. There's fear, worry, turmoil. The other instance, which, which happened lately too, is I was at work, one of my coworkers kind of came to my desk and, and was like, Hey Nish, uh, did you know that Jay Lelitha died? And to be honest, I've heard of the name. I know some of the, the fact, for those of you who don't know, she's a prominent political person, um, the chief minister in the south, in South India, the state of uh, Tamil Nadu. Um, and he said, the state has gone quiet. They're shutting down everything. There's, there's, they're extremely worried that people are going to commit suicide. They're suicides. There have been a few people who committed suicides. And I was like, uh, why are they committing suicide? Oh, because she's dead. Oh, okay. And I'm like in my head, okay, something's, I'm like, explain. Oh, they're devotees of her. And I didn't want to say anything more because I'm like, I'm not sure if he is too. So, so I said, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm from Karnataka. But the fact that you have people committing suicide when a politician passes away, guys, we scratch our head and, you know, we giggle, but that's what it is to walk in darkness. That is what it is to not have hope, not have light, not have life, that no matter what happens, I've got my life secure. We've forgotten that at one point we were as blind, as lost, as without hope, ones who had no hope or light in us, ones who were in darkness. We, do, we, you know, we don't really know what spiritual death and life are until we relate them to light and darkness and blindness. See, most of the people you see uh, at a mall or at work look alive. You know, if you tell them they're dead, they'll, they'll think you've lost your mind. <laughs> but if you substitute spiritual blindness and darkness for deadness, then you start to see what John means. People aren't dead because they can't walk or talk or think or feel or even see with physical eyes. They're dead because seeing, they do not see. And there's another aspect to this darkness that we see in Luke when Jesus was on his way to the cross and he said, this is the hour of the power of darkness. This is in reference to the kingdom of darkness, Satan and the demons. The demon darkness cannot overpower the light. That's what John has mentioned. Darkness had tried to do it. Satan tried to destroy the messianic line many times. Satan tried to kill all the babies and catch the Messiah uh, in the slaughter when Jesus was just a child. The demons came after Jesus once again and again. 
there was the temptation to get Jesus to violate God's word. Didn't happen. There was the, the garden. Didn't happen. Through his travels, Jesus encountered demons everywhere he went. Since the promise of God was given to bring a redeemer, Satan has done what he could to extinguish the light, the light that has now come in Christ. But the darkness, all the demon darkness, all the forces of hell, and all their accommodating human evil cannot successfully shut out the light. What does Colossians 1 verse 13 state? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is the domain of darkness that could not overcome the light. And you know what the beauty is? That the light shines even today. The light still shines even today. Persecution may endure, but the darkness will not overcome the light. Now John moves on to verses 9 and 11. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How sad. How sad. The world did not recognize him. They did not know him. Didn't recognize the creator. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Came to the people of Israel. They rejected him. It would seem that they loved darkness more than they did the light. That, that favorite circle, the Jewish nation, where revelation had been given, even there, there was no place for him. He must be despised and rejected even by his own nation. He was a stranger in his own house. He was unknown amidst his own handiwork. Men whom he had made made nothing of him. But you see, it isn't a truly hopeless situation. And you've got to love the words in the Bible whenever you see, however, but, yet. The following verses we see. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Redemption, salvation, hope, purpose, Adoption available to those who believe and receive him. And he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And in verse um, 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is, the life and light of the world. The very purpose as to why Jesus came down, why God took on flesh 
and dwelt among us that we might come and see the glory of the only Son from the Father and that in seeing we would believe and receive him. See, J.I. Packer has said this. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. Two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Jesus took on flesh and is fully man and will continue to be fully man and fully God for the rest of eternity. See, God's love is displayed in grandeur when we look at this verse. I mean, not only do we see that Jesus took on flesh, but when you, when you read through the rest of the passages, you see that later that John said he suffered and died in our place for the penalty of our sins. So when, when John tells us that God so loves the world in John 3.16, it is far from being an endorsement of the world. It is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. God's love is displayed here. Full display. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. See, D.A. Carson said this, the word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned on our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man. When the world became flesh, God became man. The divine word, Jesus, pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent amongst us. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a comforter? Like, like the comforter you have at night when you feel cold, you want to wrap yourself and feel a bit cozy? That's there when, he need, when you need him? Is he just a, a friend? Or is he just a person who existed at some point in history for you? Is his name just the way you end your prayers and that's the only time you would ever utter his name? Is he just a, a moral role model for you to emulate? Or is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the all-knowing, all-powerful God? Is he the Son of David, the King of the Jews, the creator of all things, the only way, the only truth, the only light of the world, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the last Adam, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, the resurrection and the life. Is he Emmanuel, God with us? 
see, the gospel truth that John wants is for us to receive and believe that we would take to the world around us, that we would tell the world to come and see the divine word, Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. See, John is very intentional about why he writes the book. And near the end in John 20, verses 31, he says, but these are written, all of the gospel of John, these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing you may have life in his name. Father, we thank you, O Lord God. For your beautiful words. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you because as we read your word, we know that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. And in him was life, and life was the light of men. And the darkness could not overcome it. And neither will ever overcome it. Father, we are so blessed to have this truth before us. Father, we ask you this afternoon that you would not let these words that we've heard be forgotten. We pray in some way that we would be enamored by you and that if anything today when we go home, so we want to read more about the gospel of John and about your son, all that is written. We pray, Father, that your name be glorified and that in our lives that we would do everything we can to bring you glory. Thank you so much for your divine word, Jesus Christ, your son. For it is in his name we pray.